two, three. Welcome back, Holy uh, holy Messes, to another episode of A Holy Mess with His Holy Mess, Father Paul. Uh, thanks for returning. Hope you've been enjoying the past couple of episodes. I'm not sure if I'm going to do an intro to this episode or not, so I always do a little bit of an intro here. Uh, we're still within the uh, the, the one-year one anniversary uh, week or couple weeks that we're going to be celebrating here. So thanks for being with us for the past year, for sure. Hope you liked the, the one-year anniversary episode with... Christopher West and uh, also uh, the grilling his holy mess. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And <laughs> uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, you are, I think, in for a treat on this episode. I uh, made a commitment a couple months ago that I will never again interview an author of a book without actually reading the book myself or listening to the entire audio book because there were a couple episodes uh, which I have not released, where I interviewed an author about their book without reading it, and it it was just a mess on my part. So I'm very happy to have uh, Dr. Dylan Caswell. Did I say Caswell correctly? Yeah. Dr. Dylan Caswell on A Holy Mess with His Holy Mess Father Paul. We're going to find out all about him in, in just a little bit, but he is the author of a book that was released earlier this year called Hope Not Nope. Hope, not nope. What's what's the subtitle? Using hope for healing and reclaiming identity as a lifelong athlete in a sick healthcare system, which is a mouthful and it's a loaded statement. And I'm sure we'll dive into the components of that. Well, thank goodness I just asked you that. So, <laughs> but but uh, but all right. So you are you are a sought out and uh, first of all, you have like so many letters next to your name, uh, and I don't even know what they all mean. I know you're a doctor, so why don't we start there? What do these <laughs> letters signify? Who are? What do you do? Yep, yep, for sure. So the, the the letters are: I have my doctorate in physical therapy, so I'm a PT, doctor of PT, and then the SCS is a sport, a board certified sports specialization. So once I finished my doctorate, I went on for further education, become a sports specialist, and kind of. Long story short, that was my my dream was to work in sports and, and work in the NFL. And soon what I found out after putting in 70 to 80 hours a week and doing all these crazy things, which, which I'm thankful for, is that God had a way better plan for me than the one that I had thought up. And it took a while for me to learn that. And, and because of stubbornness and like, no, no, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do it this way. You know, eventually led to the writing of this book and finding the truth and healing and researching and really trying to figure out how do we give people the framework and the things that they need to become the best version of themselves, the, the, the version that God designed them to be, to wake up and say, you know what? I am incredible. I am a lifelong athlete and I'm just going to get up and I'm going to get after it. So all those letters after the name, basically we can summarize it. So that's, that's what I'm trying to do here. Okay. All right. Are you an, did you just say, are you an athlete yourself? I'm an athlete myself. So I, I grew up for sports. Uh, let's see, baseball, wrestled till ninth grade and then just got burnt out from wrestling and had an old school coach. Like you talk back to this guy and you're doing knuckle pushups in the parking lot until your knuckles are bleeding. And then you get to come back into the room. So, you know, started as like a four-year-old, five-year-old wrestling. And as time went on, got to ninth grade and was a little, little burnout from wrestling. So I still enjoy wrestling a little bit, but ninth grade kind of stopped that, uh, basketball, football, baseball, 
And then once I was done playing organized sport, I got into CrossFit and coached that for a few years. Really, really enjoyed that. And now I, I more compete as a CrossFit athlete versus coaching, but I still coach a little bit. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I, I know it's hard to believe. I mean, thank goodness you can't see my midsection right now, but I used to do CrossFit. You can't believe it here, but I, I used to do it. I used to jump 36 inch boxes. I used to, you know, flip tires, slam sledgehammers. Now, uh, CrossFit is just trying to get my cross to fit around my neck. But anyway, um, so that's a, a joke I use in stand-up comedy. So I set you up there. Um, <laughs> but no, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, um, I, I met you earlier this year, uh, at a wedding of a mutual friend. Uh, I know you, you, uh, recently, by the way, congratulations, uh, just got married. Like what, like a month ago, about a month ago. Yeah. About a month ago to, uh, Brandy, formerly Brandy Copeland, uh, right now, uh, Brandy Caswell. I met her through Heart as Nails Ministries, uh, which my very good friend and mentor in many ways, Justin Fatika runs. And she was with Heart as Nails for a long time, first as a missionary and then as uh, as an employee, I guess. Yeah. And uh, you met her at some point. How long have you, did you meet just like via that or because she was up in upstate New York and that's where you were from? Yeah, it's it's a funny story and, it, and it's a story of perseverance. So I was at this time, I, I graduated school. I was working clinically for, for a different company. Uh, I was an adjunct professor and I was working with semi-pro rugby, hockey, football. And I thought it'd be a good idea to open up a satellite office in a CrossFit gym. And my mentor said, it was so funny. I created this business plan and I, I had no idea what I was doing. I'm like, yeah, man. So like, I think this will be our return on investment at this point in time. And like, I didn't even know really what that meant, but I'm like, you should go in with a business plan into a business meeting. And I'll never forget. I sit down with my mentor and he just, he knew, he goes, you want to open a clinic in the CrossFit gym? I go, yeah. He goes, awesome. Let me know how much the rent is. We'll cover it and let's get it going. Do you want to start next week? I just remember being blown back. I'm in the back of my chair and, and Dr. David Boylan, my mentor, he, he just smiles. And, and I'm like, I have a business plan. Like if, if you want to see it. And he just had so much faith in me and trust in me that he was like, no, man, I trust you. Like go and do this. I've wanted to have a clinic in Syracuse for years. I haven't had the resources, haven't had the time, like go for it, but, but know that it's, it's on you. And I was like, yes, I accept that responsibility. Let's go for it. So that was my, my first time kind of experiencing life as like a manager of a clinic. And you learn so much so fast of the little things. Like, do you have pillowcases? Do you have enough toilet paper? Do you have these things? And, and what do you do when you open up a satellite office? Well, we need a sign because how would people know where we are if we don't have a sign? And when you say a clinic, what do you mean? Like a physical for physical therapy for physical therapy? Okay. Yeah. You yeah. Yeah. CrossFit gym. Within a CrossFit gym. That's, so yeah. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. So it was, I, I coached at the gym while I was in, in grad school and we just developed a great friendship, great partnership. And as we went on, he was like, man, you could really help the members here by seeing them and keeping them active while they're going through injuries. So now they're not pausing memberships. They're not, you know, a, a lot of people will use exercise. And a common thing that I'll say is when, when I'm working with a runner, for example, are you running for something or are you running from something? And, and from the work that we've done, we found a lot of people in CrossFit, they tend to be using that fitness because they're trying to work out things in their life, like past traumas or 
toxic work environments that this hour of their day is the thing that gets them through. It's, it's their natural quote unquote medication. So when people have an injury and they go through tra traditional healthcare and they're told, you need to stop moving, stop doing that type of workout. Don't squat anymore. These are dangerous. That's dangerous. What they're hearing is, oh, the thing that makes me feel okay to get through the rest of my day, I can't do that anymore. So I saw as, wow, what a great opportunity to be with people and to show them how resilient and how incredible the human body is when we use the right framework to keep them going and, and exercise. So it was, it was such a great relationship and it was, it was a beautiful thing to start off. And I just remember going, okay, first step, like we got to get the sign up because then people know that we're here. We were low budget. We couldn't hire anyone to come and do the sign. So I call my dad. My dad goes, oh, dude, I got a 25 foot ladder. I'll come up with it. He brings up his 25 foot ladder. It's missing the leg at the bottom. So we're wedging like two by fours underneath it. I'm climbing up and I'm like, dad, I don't know if this is safe. And he's, oh no, it's good, man. Just keep going. I'm holding it down here. The ladder's shaking. So I get up and, and we're nailing this, this thing into the wall. It, it's a terrible wall. It's spackle. And then there's like six feet and then metal. So the screw just goes through and it, it's just poof, right to it. It's the weather side of the wall. This sign fell down about seven to 10 different times. And there's this one night in particular, I'm about a year and a half into it now. Oh, and the, the, the top corner of the sign is hanging down. And I'm like, I felt like I was at the end, you know, I it's, it's a snowstorm. It's the middle of the night. And I was like, man, I took on this responsibility. That corner of the sign hanging down makes the clinic look bad. It makes the, the CrossFit gym look bad. It makes it look like we're not together. So I climbed up, I jumped on a dumpster, climbed up the side of the wall, kind of parkour my way up to the roof. And I have the tool to put the top corner back in. I go to put it back in and the screw falls down oh into the snow. You know, it's at night, snowstorm. I put my head down in defeat. I'm just laying there and I'm, I'm just, it's not meant to be like, I should just take the sign down. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm through. I'm, I'm done thinking with Nope, not hope. I was thinking, nope, not hope. Okay. And I just hear this voice go, Hey, are you looking for this? And it was a guy down in the parking lot holding the screw. And, and I'm, I'm blown away. I'm like, man, you don't know how bad I need that screw right now. So he tosses it up to me and, and I, I put it in the corner and it was really odd and, and mysterious and fascinating because I get it in and then I just go to yell out to him, thank you. And, and there's no one there. And, and there's, there's not footprints in the snow that I could find there. There's no cars. There's no buses coming by. Like to this day, I'm convinced that it was an angel that came to, to really help me out because long story short, Brandy saw that sign and the bottom of the sign said, hope set in motion. So Brandy saw hope set in motion and that invited her to come into the gym as a member of the CrossFit community. And then through that, her and I were, were able to meet and, you know, we started off as, as friends and then time evolved and we both had feelings for each other and it evolved into the relationship and then it evolved into to marriage. So I, I have part of that sign still hanging in my studio to this day to, to remind myself that, you know, it's when you set out on a, on an important mission, it's not going to be easy. You have to continue to persevere when you're in the thick of it, when you're getting slapped in the face with Nope, you don't know why that's happening, but retrospectively you're able to make sense of it. If you keep trying to move through it instead of just waving the white flag and saying, I'm done. It's, 
it's it's not meant to be. So that's how how we met. And you know, we we spent oh, two weeks honeymoon in Italy, and we actually got to shake hands with the Pope. No, you didn't. Are you yeah. serious? It was it was it was insane, and it was so funny because we had to go through these all these lines of security. It was another story of perseverance to even like get up into where the newlyweds are situated. Yeah, oh, yeah that's right. He meets with them. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Every Wednesday and. Yeah. So we had to go through three levels of security and we had our bags with us because we checked out of our bed and breakfast and around to the next location. The Vatican let us bring it in. And then the guard got mad that we had our baggage. So he made us put it away. We go to put it away. We go and change to put on like better attire. Yeah, and the yeah. guy that originally rejected us then sat us in the seats, like up and up at where the newlyweds are for the yeah, sure, yeah. round. Yeah. And it's hysterical because we're looking around and we're probably the only Americans that are sitting there and he's coming around Pope Francis and everyone, El Papa, El Papa. And I'm like, Brandy, what do we say? Because like, I don't want to seem like a poser and be yelling out El Papa. Like, <laughs> like, do I just say the Pope? And then like, what do you say when you shake hands with the Pope? So, you know, El Papa and he comes to us and I just shake his hand. I'm like, hi, Pope Francis. Thank you. Thank you for everything. And then he's on to the next one. I'm like, man, that was so embarrassing. Like, what did you say in that situation? <laughs> hey, at least, um, you know, I, I made the mistake once of referring to him completely by accident in one of my classes in the seminary as La Papa. And I was quickly corrected because La was a female pronoun or something like that. And I was like, oh, they're like, no, Il Papa, Il Papa. And I'm like, all right, my bad. I don't know these. I don't really, I don't even know English. Um, you know what I mean? So, and, and that's not as bad, you know, you saying, hi, hi, Pope. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, th there was a, somebody, a seminarian who, uh, met the Pope in Rome and, uh, just said, um, thank you for being the Pope. <laughs> and, uh, Pope John, it was Pope John Paul II. He just started laughing. Thank you for being the Pope. He repeated it in, uh, in English. So that, that's so cool. I mean, you got to meet, dude, I have been. Catholic my entire life. I've been a priest for over 12 years. I have never met the Pope. And from what you just told me before we hit record, my understanding is you just became Catholic like very recently, correct? Yeah. April 20, uh, 2022 is when I was baptized as an adult into the Catholic church. So I, I don't know, maybe 18 months now you're a Catholic and you met the Pope already. I'm a little resentful. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, dude. Uh, and I, we could get into that. I think we should, cause it is a Catholic podcast, uh, yeah. by the way, but I don't want to dive into that as the first thing, although that is the most important thing for sure. 100%. But I have met, uh, several physical therapists, uh, in my life. I used to, especially, uh, during the seminary, I went to a physical therapy very often, two to three days a week, uh, for my shoulders and for my lower right back. And I, you know, uh, not that I know a million physical therapists, but I'm just not aware of many of them writing books. Um, so what made you uh, write this book? By the way, how long have you been uh, officially a doctor of physical therapy? Yeah, so I, I graduated in 2017 with my doctorate. And then prior to that, I was working as a PT assistant. So been in the field working clinically for about over a decade and, and now working as an adjunct professor. So it's been awesome to see the student side, the teacher side, although we're always students. And, you know, what inspired me to, to write it is, is a great question. I never, I never dreamed of being an author. It was never a, a goal that I had. 
you know, growing up, I, I had dyslexia and, and grammar was extremely difficult. I had to go to a bunch of special help classes, which my brother now jokes around that, well, the reason you have all these degrees and you have a book is because all that extra time you spent in school from, from a young age. And so, yeah, I was, you know, I was, I was working towards wanting to pursue this dream of working in, in professional sports with, you know, the NFL, I was putting in a crazy amount of hours per week to, to do this. And I have, I had the connections and, 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 and the path was there, but you know, COVID happened. And for a lot of people, COVID was a, a rough time. Other people, it kind of allowed them to have time to reflect and sit and go, what, what am I doing here? Like, what, what is my purpose? Who am I serving? And at that point I was dabbling in faith, but I wasn't really all, all the way in. I, I didn't quite get it. And so I was like, well, why don't I start with the Bible, start with the Old Testament and then read it from front to back. And, and that will give me the answers. I got about three books into the Old Testament. and was like, this is terrible. Like, where's the joy? Where's the happiness? Like, this is not what I thought like being Christian would, would be. But it did allow me to pause and go, you know what? Your work bucket is so full. Like you're doing 80 hours a week. You're traveling with all these athletes. You're doing all these things and, and you're empty. Like, why are you empty? You should be fulfilled in this thing that you think that you're being called to. And I realized, wow, I've never even prayed and asked, what is it that you want me to do? What is it that, how is it that, that I can serve? And so I had time because my schedule was gone. The ACC tournament was done. All sports were canceled. All the athletes very intuitively said, well, why am I training or rehabbing if I don't have anything to compete for? Like, this isn't coming back. So all the athletes are like, I'm done. So I, I had all this time on my hands. So I prayed on that. And the message I got was, well, I want you to start writing. And I'm like, I don't think you do because I don't really know where commas go. Like I went into this healthcare field because we write in abbreviations. And so I don't ever have to write like an actual full sentence. <laughs> I'm like, I hear you, God, but you got, you got the wrong guy. Like, like you got an editor in mind because we're going to need that. And I was like, all right, like I need to be obedient. And I, Emily. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be obedient. And I didn't quite know what I was writing at that point, but I was intrigued by language. Like language has always fascinated me that we have all these different accents. We have all these different languages that we speak? Where did it come from? How did it get so scattered? How can I say one word and it be interpreted completely different? How do, how does the body and, and the, the verbal cues and physical cues, like how does all this change the meaning of a sentence? So I just researched language and I started writing about language. And then after I wrote the chapter on language, which I thought was going to be this whole thing, then the next thing was brought up of, well, I want you to look at gratitude. I want you to look at forgiveness. I want you to blend the science with your faith to put this framework together. So over time, it kept evolving, kept evolving, kept evolving. And then it took me three and a half years to write and research and, and put it all together. And that chapter that I originally started with, that I didn't even know was going to be a book, almost didn't even make the final cut. It, it just kept evolving to this point that then eventually as I started being obedient, the message came of the, the title of the book is hope, not nope. And it was like, Whoa, awesome. Like now I see where this piece fits. Now I see where this piece fits. And as I kept working and being obedient, it became more and more clear of, of what this book needed to be. And it was, 
it was such a fun process of writing it. Like there, there's times I, I would wake up at like four in the morning and start typing and I'd wake up at eight o'clock and I'd open up my like Google docs and I'd be like, man, who the heck put that in there? Like that, that's pretty cool. And then I would research it. And it was just so, um, it, it brought a lot of my passions together of science and research and helping people, but it helped to bring me closer to the Lord and, and really trust in my faith. And even to that point, like I remember finishing the first rough draft and, and shutting my laptop and going, awesome. Nobody needs to see this, like shut it down because what people don't, don't necessarily reflect on or realize is that when you put out a book and this book is, there's a lot of science in the book, but it's presented in a way to make it understandable and digestible. So the science, you know, cool, we can debate that. But when it's your opinions and it's your faith and you're putting yourself out for criticism and judgment, like that's a scary thing to, to do. And I had really great people like Tim Green, who's a best-selling author and played for the Atlanta Falcons who wrote the foreword for the book. And I had people reviewing it that are really high in the sports science field and in fitness and wellness. And, and now I'm like, man, like now I have, now I'm responsible for their name as well, depending on how this book does. And I got all in my head of this fear of failure and rejection and judgment and all these things. And when I was baptized in 2022, it really shifted my perspective. God asked you to write this thing. God gave you this message. God gave you this mission. Why do you care if someone here judges you on that? Like where, where is your fulfillment? Where is your, what judgment are you accepting? Where is that coming from? And it put it really into perspective of, okay, yeah, like this book is not for me. Like I enjoyed writing it, but it's really now I need to get this out to people. And if that comes with criticism and that comes with judgment, everyone has critics, everybody gets judged. But as long as I'm making my creator happy and I'm being obedient to him and I'm serving others, I'm fulfilled. I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Wow. Praise, praise the Lord, man. Um, and I, I want to circle back on something cause I didn't realize not only that you just became Catholic, but you were baptized uh, for, for the first time a year and a half ago. So we'll definitely get into what led to that. Um, so how long ago when this first happened, when, uh, the Lord said, I want you to start writing, how many years ago was that? that? That was about three and a half years ago from the time it was published. So probably around four years now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so when you finally came to, uh, that excellent realization, uh, that the Lord gave you like, Hey, who cares? You know what I mean? Like, uh, you're enough in me and, uh, I got to get this out there to people. You went from okay nobody needs to see this too let me get this out there to people when you say let me get this out there if you had to say okay we got 60 seconds to sell it not sell sell but to, to sell it, like why people should read this why i had to get this out there why i want people to really read or to to, to listen to this book um what are you what are you telling people what what what, what is that yeah so our, our mission is to empower hope to those plagued by nope Nope is the rejection that we all face, the misinformation that we gather that tempts us into believing that we're not enough, that we're broken, that we're not seen, that we're fragile, and, and that we can't do something. We can't overcome this adversity. And from my perspective as a healthcare provider, I just I was seeing this so often with people that I was working with, and it really started to upset me, and it really started to fire me up. I think the big mission of, of hope is under is people understanding what actually creates healing and how do we actually get to a state where people are happy. And 
I, I use this test, the drive around test, but just driving around, how many people do you see in their car smiling? It's becoming more and more rare that people are jamming out in their car, smiling, waving over to you at a stop sign. Everyone's in their own lane. People are grumpy. We're, we're more separated than, than ever before. People are more anxious. And so to me, I want to get this book out to those people that want a different way. They, 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 and I'm not saying that medicine doesn't have a time or place and surgery doesn't have a time or place or traditional exercise doesn't have a time time or place, but the modern research has really shown us that some of these things that are simple, but not easy go the furthest in healing. And that's a framework I want to give to people is that you can take control of your health. That's the self-agency part. The word health literally means to make whole. It comes from a Greek word. It means to make whole. So really the framework in the book and this message of hope, not nope is how do we make people whole? Because mm. once people are whole and fulfilled and are living out what, what God is asking them to do, what a, what a phenomenal world that would be. And I, and I know we're far away from that, but I do have this big vision and this big dream that we can, we can make a change for that and, and we can progress towards that. Yeah. I, uh, I could tell you from my, my own experience of having uh, listened to all of uh, all, all of your words in, in the book that it, uh, it definitely inspired hope in me, but also makes me want to go back to it. And like I told you before we started that the thing with the audiobook, as great as it is, I wasn't able to highlight. I'm a highlighter. I'm a note taker. And, and I'm not just saying this because I'm putting this out there or, or we like uh, I'm saying to you, like I literally want to go back to it because there are things in my own life that I needed to hear. And then I want to go back and be reminded of. I'm looking down because I'm trying to go to your chapters, the different titles of your chapters um, that you have in here. You know, I told you, uh, I'm going to repeat this subtitle. So the title of the book is Hope Not Nope, Using Hope for Healing and Reclaiming Identity as a Lifelong Athlete in a Sick Healthcare System. And even though I may not be a, an athlete uh, per se or whatever, uh, a little athletic, but not an athlete, I, I don't think this book is just for athletes. Uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, because I want to go back and, and I learned a lot of things in this book. And I love when people give real life examples um, uh, or I even enjoy some of your examples that were, you know, from like, you know, uh, like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or, uh, you know. <laughs> Different stories like that, you know, that catches my ear. I think that's that's cool. And I like how you would get that and say, all right, somebody said I need to give a real example here. And then you went ahead and gave like, you know, example from from history or whatever. But I think that's a good thing. And, um, you know, because originally I'm looking at this book, and I'm like, okay, you know, he's a physical therapist. This is going to be about, you know, um, you know, like therapy and how like, you know, maybe conventional medicine isn't all that great or whatever. These are my words, not yours, or, you know, maybe second thinking surgery. So, okay. You know, I'm not really, you know, into sports that much, but you know what? I'm, I, I, you know, I, I, I liked them when I met him. I met Brandy. I, I, I like hope not nope, you know? And, and I'm like, well, you know what? I'm getting things from this book and I'm not even, you know, and there's things that I'm learning about the healthcare system or, just the, or even just the, the, the negativity of, of certain thinking or the way that the brain works, or even just learning more about something as simple, you say, right? Not easy, simple, not easy as uh, the importance of sleep, 
yeah. you know, uh, and, and things like that. I think that's one of your uh, last chapters. Yeah, is on sleep. Movement is medicine. I definitely needed to hear that. Gratitude. I'm going literally in reverse of your chapters here, <laughs> but like something that you know, like, hey, you don't need to be playing. You know, you don't need to be at a CrossFit gym to learn more about gratitude. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, well, I'm not looking to be a professional an athlete. Like, it's like, yeah, uh, you know what? There's a chapter on perspective. Can we all not have a better perspective? There's a chapter on community. Do we not need community a lot better? Do we want to? We could all learn about. Uh, things that are simple but not easy and what that means. Um, yeah, so, and I loved, loved, and maybe we'll get into this, not that we'll go chapter by chapter or whatever, but, like, you know, the whole thing of, like, hey, this is how we always did it, and the whole thing about steadying the horses, you know? Yeah. I was like, whoa. Like, yeah. yeah, that was, like, an interesting perspective. But you started off, your chap first chapter is about the spirit of hope, yeah. about the spirit of hope. And you said something to me before we started um, about uh, you're afraid that that most people think that hope is passive. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? And can you speak to uh, why the very first chapter is the spirit of hope and what that means? Yeah, for sure. And, and it's so funny, like some of the examples that you pointed out, like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle example, that was a tug of war with the editor. Like, do you really want that in there? Like, look, if I'm writing a book, I want it to be my authentic self. This is who I am. So I'm going to use these examples. We'll use real life examples and we'll use stories from the past because if I'm reading a book, I want to learn, but I also want to be entertained a little bit. And I'm like, these stories are, are fun and they add to it. So it was funny. The, the talking more. Yeah. And, and even the subtitle, we, we kind of went back and forth a little bit with this idea of a lifelong athlete because Father Paul, you are a lifelong athlete because in my opinion, everybody's an athlete. Everybody has the opportunity to be an athlete. We tend to think of an athlete being, I have a competition this weekend. I ran a hundred meter dash in this time. Like I'm playing a basketball tournament this weekend. And what makes a lifelong athlete is that you're living out the values of an athlete that you are willing to sacrifice for other people, that you're disciplined, that you're doing your daily task, you're serving other people, you're being disciplined in that and that you're willing to push and keep pushing and keep working hard. So those values is what defines a lifelong athlete. So to that definition, Father Paul, I don't see how you're not a lifelong athlete. If you're up here and you're like, yeah, you know what? I'm late to mass. And, and then I kind of just hang out afterwards. I'm not praying. I'm not doing a podcast. I'm not doing all these other things. I'd say, yeah, no, you're not a lifelong athlete. You're not living out those values but you are by what you're doing to help people, your discipline, your sacrifice, that makes you a lifelong athlete. And someone listening that if you're driving and you're a parent and you are keeping young kids breathing and you're getting them to their school and to practices and getting them to bed at night and getting them to church and, and to mass and raising them, you are living a athlete schedule, if not more than, than what a high elite level athlete is going through that makes you a lifelong athlete. And, and I was a little worried when, when we like, I was like, I want to keep that because I strongly believe, but the, the con to that is people see lifelong athlete and they go, Oh, it's not for me. I'm, I'm not an athlete. And, and so I wish I could put on the book on the front cover, lifelong athlete drop down. Yes, you are. And, 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 and explain that. But I like the way that you explained it to me, because then it, it made me think about, 
you know, uh, not to pat myself on the back, but like I, I, I'm an athlete in hope because that hope has been something that I've been having to practice and work at uh, all the time or even faith, right? St. Paul talks about running the race, you know, he's not talking about, uh, the, you know, the stadium, you know, the, uh, the athletes running in the stadium for a, a crown that withers, but we're, you know, running the race for an imperishable crown. So to run the race, you know, things like that. So, yeah, I, you're, you're right. I, um, it has more to do with just the, uh, the, the physical uh, world or maybe just playing sports. So thank you for uh, that disclaimer. Absolutely. And if you're listening to this and you got excited because you just said, I'm a lifelong athlete, you should be excited. Like, cause you, cause you are, and that's such an, an important title and, and identity to have. But yeah, so chapter one, we start with the spirit of hope. And it's one of these things of, you know, let's set the stage. The, the book is about hope. We have to talk about nope, but before we get to nope, let's, let's quickly dive into what hope is because there's so many misconceptions about hope. People will say, I hope that I get better. I hope that I get that job promotion. I hope that that sign stays up at the CrossFit gym and I get to meet this beautiful girl and eventually get married. But we just, I hope, I hope, I hope. And, and I'm not saying that that's wrong or a bad thing to do because hope can be a thought. Hope can be a mindset. Hope can be a belief. Hope can be a behavior. But what hope is not is it's not passive. Hope is learned and earned. Again, hope is not passive. It's learned and earned. There is a famous hope researcher from the University of Kansas, C.R. Schneider, spent his whole life researching hope. What, what is hope? How do people have it? When do they not have it? And he found from his research that for hope to exist, there has to be this following trilogy. There has to be self-agency, goals, and a framework to achieve. Ooh. So now when we look at hope in that way, wow, we can do so much more because when I work with people, and they're like, how do I, how do I feel hope? How do I become hope? Well, do you have the perspective that we don't control everything, but there's a lot of things that we can control when it comes to our health? Do you have the perspective that we're able to respond to, to situations versus reacting to them? Like that, that is self-agency that, hey, you, you, you are facing this obstacle. It's scary. It's, it, it's difficult but it was put on your plate because you can handle it. You have the resources and the tools. You may not know that yet. You may not think that yet, but you can get through that. So self-agency has to be part of hope. Second part is goals. You have to have some type of goal in, in mind. It can be a smart goal. It might be that, you know, when I'm 80 years old, I want to be able to throw a football to my grandkids or I want to walk my daughter down the aisle. Like It, it could be any, any of those things, but you have to have a goal because then you have a trajectory point. You, you, you know where you're going and then you have markers to keep you on that path when you start to get off of it because it's, it's gonna happen at some point or, or another. We're not perfect. It's not gonna be a straight line trajectory. But then lastly, you need a framework. You need a framework to achieve that goal. And that framework needs to be based on fundamental uh, principles of science and fundamental principles of faith. It has to intertwine those to get you to where you wanna be because there's so much, we're, we're in this golden age of misinformation. You can type something into Google or go on Instagram and within 0.0014 seconds, you have a list of results. And now you have to filter through what's the truth and, and what's just trying to get me with a sales gimmick and the general population. How are you supposed to be able to filter through these things? Oh, I don't know, but this person seems like they know what they're talking about. 
they have some letters after their name. So I'm going to follow that framework. But then you get into the real science, the real research behind it. And you find that that was junk science because in science, kind of digressing a bit, but in science, depending on how you set up the research, you can show that there's significance in, in really anything. So oftentimes what we're seeing is that people create a product and because they create this product, they create a research study. And what they do is they end up making this research study where they find something that's non-significant. So they change the variables to make this thing that was non-significant seem significant. So now this thing that it seems significant needs this product to now make it non-significant again. Mm. The reality was, huh, that thing wasn't even needed in the first place. But people aren't really getting that until afterwards. Oh, I tried that. I spent all my money on this. And you know, a verse that really sticks out to me is in Mark of she had spent a great deal of money under the care of many doctors, yet instead of growing better, she grew worse. The woman was hemorrhaging for 18 years. Yes. Bible, yep. the, yeah, the woman hemorrhaging for 18 years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we look at their framework. Years, 18 years. All her money on doctors. Yes. And then so, we look at that framework and, and what does Jesus say to her? Your faith has healed you. So the question I beg to ask people is, where are you putting your faith? Because it's good that we have technology. It's good that we have access to things we didn't have access to before. It's good that we have access to some medications that are super helpful. It's good that we have access to some surgeries that are super helpful. It's good that we have access to some wellness things that can create a, a change in, in your wellness. But are you putting your faith all the way in that thing or are you putting in something greater? And, and you know, when people read the book, it's funny because the people that are Christian and Catholic, they'll go, wow, this was written from a Christian perspective. The people that are not Christian or Catholic and are more, let's just say secular, they respond to me and go, wow, there's something in there that's fascinating and I'm curious about it, but I don't know what it is. And I just smile. I'm like, perfect. You're, you're in a great place. Like that, that's, that's where, where you should be. So yeah. So for hope to exist, we need self-agency, we need goals, we need a framework. And then in that framework, where are you getting your data from? Is it a trusted source? Where are you putting your faith and, and, and where do we need to redirect? What levers do we need to pull? Is, is the goal that you made, are you in the right season with the right resources? So how do we start to change those things to now create hope? Yeah. And the, literally the very next cha chapter is the current landscape and going through that. And I think each chapter builds upon each because then you, you're talking about mathematics to playing your neural system. I don't even know how to say the next word, but a bias in prediction models, environments, role in prediction, building the brain, the greatest weapon of mankind, and on and on and on, misfires of communication. And I think that you give a lot of great, you know, uh, as I said before, examples of history of, of science um, and also, as you just said, biblically. Um, did you intentionally write it from a sort of Christian standpoint or did that, is that just something that happened naturally because that's who you are now? Yeah. It's something that happened naturally because when, when I was writing the bulk of this, you know, I still was kind of dabbling in faith. You know, I was super curious. I was starting to learn about it and, you know, it just kind of, it, it took shape as it went on. And I look back now and I'm just like, wow, like that, that was awesome that like the Lord had his hand through this entire work and was giving me thing and, and introducing me to things that I wasn't even necessarily aware of at that point that, 
you know, to this point of like writing the book, I've, I think I've read it 10 times now. And, and each time I read it, I I'm still like, Oh wow. Like not to pat myself on the back by any means, but I read it and I'm just like, Oh wow. Yeah. Like there's, there's a lot of truth in that or, or like, that's challenging. Like I need to look at this, this further. And it was just because like the Holy spirit I felt was, was with me and giving me these things to write. And then after being baptized and looking back through it, I was like, Oh wow. Like actually one of my deacons, um, who's a great mentor, great friend, you know, he, he read through it and he was the first one to say to me, like, this is great because like, I can tell that it's Christian, but like, I don't think other people will know, but it gets them curious and, and, and excited. And that was the first time I was like, huh? Like, I don't even think that was, that was my intention, but like, it gets me excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought, I don't, I'm not, I don't remember what chapter it was in, but I, it was fascinating the whole thing between uh the story that you told between uh einstein as a student and his professor yeah um on the whole existence of god or whatever and how he broke that down i was like i think every person on the planet needs to hear this right now yeah. um that that itself was was fascinating i don't, I don't even know if I, einstein was a believer was he I, I should probably know this but it was like it was weird right like he was he was, I don't think he was an atheist, but I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Yeah. It, it goes back and forth. Like he wasn't strong in his faith, but he couldn't disprove it. So because he couldn't disprove the existence, he was just kind of somewhere in the middle and then different yeah. people will take the story and, and kind of spin it in, in these different ways. But, um, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll share the story because people listening, it's like, man, you brought me to the cliff. Like what, what, what was the story? So I, I I'll, I'll share that quick. So Einstein, is a student, he's in class and his professor asked him, if God created everything, then did God create evil? Einstein was a freshman at this point. I learned after I learned the story that it was Einstein. Like the first time I heard him, like, wow, that student sounds incredibly intelligent. And they're like, yeah, it was Albert Einstein. I'm like, that makes sense. So we'll, we'll start with that. It's, it's Albert Einstein. He stands up and he goes, is he a freshman in high school or college? College, freshman in college. Right. Yep. And, and his professor's atheist asked the question, does God exist? And if, if God exists and created everything, did he create evil? So Einstein stands up and he goes, sir, does darkness exist? And the professor goes, yeah, of course darkness exists. And Einstein goes, no, it doesn't. We have the speed of light. We can measure the speed of light. We don't have the speed of darkness. We've never been able to find dark matter. A lot of people are searching for it, but it hasn't been found. All darkness is, is the absence of light. And the professor goes, okay. Einstein carries on and he goes, sir, does cold exist? And the professor goes, yeah, of course cold exists. And the professor goes, or Einstein goes, we have measurements of heat. We live nowhere near absolute zero. Cold doesn't exist. We perceive cold, but it's really just an absence of heat. So then the professor goes, all right, where, where are you going with this? And Einstein goes, you claim to say that God created evil, but in reality, what evil is, is an absence of God. So then that got me thinking with the people that I work with, you know, what else, what in my career, what am I working with people that this happens, that we believe there to be this thing, but in reality, it's just an absence of this other thing. And it brought me to pain because we all experience pain at some point in our lives. The only exception is somebody that has congenital insensitivity. 
And if you have that, their life expectancy, they do not make it past their thirties because they're crazy. They're jumping off stuff at parties. They get fractures and infections and they can't feel it. So they, they end up having a very short life expectancy, which right there should change our relationship with pain. Pain is a good thing to teach us our limitations, but it got me thinking, wow, what is pain? Because father Paul and I, we could both roll our ankle, but have a completely different pain experience. We can have the same medical diagnosis, but have different pain experiences. And when you look at the definition of pain, it's still trying to be figured out. And basically it's a subjective experience of something that could be a threat or not be a threat, which literally leaves it wide open to like, what is this experience of pain? So then I started asking a different question. Does pain exist or is it just an absence of something? And if it's just an absence of something, if we have someone that is experiencing pain and we fulfill that absence, how does it change their outcome? How does it change their being? So what I've discovered is that, and I say me, but like there's a ton of researchers that have looked at pain and have helped to shift my perspective and my mentors helped with it. But what pain is, it's an absence or a threat of losing a meaningful activity. So people that I've worked with that are in chronic pain and they've done all these different treatments, they've done medicine, they've done pain management, they've done chiropractor, they've seen massage therapists, physical therapists, they, they've done everything and they're kind of, what's, what's left? And I asked them, well, what is it that you want to be able to do? What is that goal? What is that dream that you had? And one example that I do share in the book, and I don't share too many examples from my patients because I believe it's their stories and there to tell, but this one is, is very powerful and, and she's incredible, but she had back pain for years and nothing was touching it. And she said that her dream was to go horseback riding in Puerto Rico. And I said, wow, that's great. Why haven't you done it? She goes, well, I haven't been to Puerto Rico. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I have low back pain. I'm like, all right. So she had a trip. Her, her and her husband were going on a trip, retirement trip to Puerto Rico. And she came in for one more appointment. And, and I'll be honest, I was kind of like, I don't know what else to offer. Like, I, I, I don't want you to keep coming in, wasting your time and wasting your money because I, I don't think I'm making any changes. Like, I'm not guiding you towards the change that you're looking for. And I don't want you to give up hope, but maybe I'm just not the person to guide you. You mean in, in, in terms of elevate, elevating the pain? Exactly. In terms of finding a solution for her. And so, you know, we get chatting and she goes, I'm going to Puerto Rico. There's horseback riding available and we have the resources. I th I'm thinking about doing it, but I'm nervous about my back. And I, and I, and I go, you know, what's, what's the worst case scenario? You live out your lifelong dream and your back that's already sore, stays sore or becomes a little bit more sore but you get to live out this thing that you've dreamt of as a little girl. And she built up the courage and said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to go horseback riding in Puerto Rico. I'm like, awesome. So she did. And she came back and I saw her for one more session. And she came in for that session to tell me that she went horseback riding for three hours and had no back pain, no back pain whatsoever. This was chronic low back pain. Nothing was touching it. When she filled her cup with meaningful activity, her pain was gone. Now, that didn't last long term. 
because when she came back to where I was treating her, she's back into a difficult environment. She has the responsibilities. And, you know, when you're on vacation, you're on vacation, when you're back home, all, all the things start adding up. So these things started adding to the pain experience again, because she didn't have that meaningful activity anymore. So if we can start looking at, well, how do we get pain to be decreased? We need to get back to meaningful activities for that person. And everyone's meaningful activity is different. Some people, their meaningful activity is not horseback riding in Puerto Rico. It's, I need to go to work tomorrow because I need to bring home a paycheck because I need to put food on the table for my family. And if I'm not able to do that, then I don't know what's going to happen with my family because I have to help provide for them. So their meaningful activity that's being threatened to taken away, if it's a back injury, shoulder injury, is their work. And there's really cool research showing that when you musician, let's take a pianist, for example, if they hurt their hand, their pain experience is elevated compared to someone who doesn't use their hands for work. Because now this injury to their hand isn't saying, oh, it's just a jammed finger. It's this is a thing that's providing me with meaningful activity. This is a thing that's providing resources for me to reach the people that I want to be able to reach. So the sooner that we can get people back to meaningful activity in a graded and safe way, our relationship with pain starts to change. Hmm. Allow me to play devil's advocate for a second. Oh, yeah. I don't like the word devil advocate. Uh, <laughs> doctor's advocate. I don't know. So, um, so are you saying, cause you're not against in any which way, shape or form, as I've read in your book and you've even said here, you're not like surgeries or, you know, medicine or things like that. I don't, I don't correct me if I'm wrong. So you'll have a chance to say whatever, but my, I guess my question would be how, like if, if something is something exists, although you're now you're saying pain, does pain actually exist or is it the absence of something? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Is it just the, the absence of meaningful activity or the threat of losing a meaningful activity due to the injury or pain response and the uncertainty in that? But what if there's like legitimately like a, like a, I don't know what the proper words are for your discs, you know, or, or something like, you know what I mean? When you're both like, isn't there just legitimate sometimes injury? And I guess what I'm asking is, I mean, it's fascinating that she went three hours. She had a chronic back pain. She went three hours, not one back pain. And like, wow, okay. And then she came back in the environment. But I guess I'm just asking like, I want—I don't want to say taking faith aside of it because maybe the Lord completely was just like, you know what? I'm going to, you know, hold you together for a couple hours and let you, because that's possible, right? That, right. That's, that's possible. That's, that's possible. And maybe that's what you're getting at. I don't know. But I guess I'm just like, well, how does like, if somebody actually has a problem, like a, yeah. like something does exist, uh, uh, I don't know, a frozen shoulder or something, but my dream was to always, um, I don't know, uh, constantly throw, you know, uh, baseballs with my my nephew and uh, spending time with my nephew is giving me joy but i have a frozen shoulder how can doing what is meaningful to me take away that pain if there actually is something wrong with my shoulder are you, are you seeing what i'm saying oh, it's it's a phenomenal question it's it's it is it's, all right it's, good it's a phenomenal question <laughs> yeah yeah and and so when i when i started in school and you know undergrad and then graduate we were learning this model called the biopsychosocial model so biology, psychology, and then society. 
and, and the experience of our biology intertwined with psychology, intertwined with society, this is what helps to explain injuries and the pain experience. And at that time, the field was still very much that the bio part is the biggest part. And then the psychosocial is like the secondary part of it. As research has now evolved for the past, it's really been 20 to 30 years, but in the past 10 years, there's been a lot more being pumped out. That bio part is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And the psychosocial aspect is becoming larger and larger and larger and larger. And let me dive into it a little bit with some science and, and background and some research. And you mentioned herniated disc, and I'm just going to use that as, as an example. So somebody has back pain, they might have some nerve pain going down their leg. So they go to get it checked out. What usually happens when they go to get checked out? Imaging is ordered. X-ray, and then you go get the MRI. And then from that image report, a person might say, oh, from the image, you have a herniated disc at L4, L5. It's hitting your sciatic nerve, and that's why you're feeling these symptoms down your leg. And traditionally, before the newer research came out, that was what we all kind of went off of. The image is the gold standard. So if the image shows that, then we treat this as a herniated disc. And we can use movement. We could use injections. Some people may need surgery in order to help resolve that. But that was, that was the model. And then researchers got clever. And they started asking the question, how do we know that the disc is actually creating the issue? How do we know that this disc hasn't been herniated for years? How do we know it's not something else? Like, how do we know it's not, it's not a pre-existing thing? So what they did is they brought in groups. They had one group that was symptomatic, meaning that they had back pain and nerve symptoms down their leg. And then the other group was asymptomatic. So they didn't have back pain. They didn't have sciatica. They didn't have any of that stuff going on. And they imaged both groups. And what they found is that a higher percentage of the asymptomatic population actually had disc herniations compared to the symptomatic population that had a disc herniation shown by the imaging. Hmm. So it really started to shift the framework into, wow, how much should we put into biomechanics? Because we've never questioned this before. We've just thought that this is the studying the horses. This is the way that this is done. Yeah. And, yeah. and another quick example sure. I can give here with the shoulder is that people have shoulder pain. They go get an MRI done or ultrasound imaging, and they're told you have a rotator cuff tear. Your rotator cuff tear is causing your pain. Well, the reality is, is that 91% of MLB pitchers have a torn rotator cuff. 89% of MLB play pitchers have a torn labrum, yet they're asymptomatic and they are doing the most violent motion to their shoulders repetitively over time, and they don't have pain. So they don't even know about it. So they don't even know about it. Yeah, they don't even know about it until an image is done. And then they're told, oh, this is what's happening. This is what is creating if they do have that pain experience. But it's the question of, well, how long has that actually existed before this pain started to come on? And then it begs the question of, well, what was happening in your life when the pain experience started to come on? Well, it was a contract year. I didn't know if I was going to get re-signed and all these other variables that, that we call internal load, all these things that make us human, right? Sleep, nutrition, relationships, uh, all, all these things that go into how do we adapt to stresses? So we're in this kind of weird period where the research has really changed, but 
it takes a while to get it into the traditional healthcare system. So some people are still practicing the traditional way of you come in with back pain, you get an image, you get a cortisone injection. This is caused by a herniated disc. When in reality, what should happen is, okay, you have back pain. Let's sit down and talk about it because the research shows that a patient on average gets interrupted every 11 seconds in an appointment. Imagine trying to tell a story of how much discomfort you're in and what you think is creating it. And you get interrupted every 11 seconds. Like by the doctor, by the doctor or, or nurses or just different things going on. Sometimes they rush you, man. They, they rush, they rush you. you sometimes. Yeah. One time I said, I'm like, can you look at me? Uh, cause they were just typing. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I, and I don't want it to seem like I'm bashing on, on healthcare providers because no, please do. No, I'm just kidding. I'm yeah, yeah. Cause I, I know that they're, they care and I know that they, they're loving for people in the way that they've been taught to love people that they're working with. But it's really the system that's dictating how these things are done because what creates what what keeps the lights on reimbursement what drives reimbursements imaging pharmacology prescribing medications surgeries and, and to that point again like there's there's a time and place where surgery is needed we need to do a better job at pinpointing when that time and place is because we're starting to see a lot of surgeries compared to a placebo surgery so it's it's pretty interesting data person with like a meniscus tear, a degenerative meniscal tear, they'll go in and actually do the surgery. And then the other group, they'll just make incisions and close it up, but they won't actually touch the meniscus. But the person doesn't know that, that they have no idea that that happened. And this, this was done by Siobhan and et al. And it's in the Scandinavian journal of sports medicine. And they've done a two-year and five-year follow-up. They're working on an eight-year follow-up now. All the outcomes are the same. Pain level down, function increased, and, and, and it's incredible. So I'm not saying a meniscus surgery is never needed, but the science should start to help us question our framework of, do I actually need that thing? Or is it my brain has such a strong belief and I have such a strong faith in that surgical procedure or that medication or that exercise that that's driving the outcome? So are you saying in a sense that our brain and the way we think could eradicate the pain? Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm going to back up even further to World War II with Dr. Henry Beecher from Harvard University. So he was a a medic during the war and soldiers were going down. He's known as the father of placebos from his research. Yeah, that was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, so to, to too many make- stories because I want everybody to read your over to get your book, man. We got to give some cliffhangers, bro. Right, right, but yeah. So he's a medic in World War II, and to that question of well, well, if there's something mechanical, like there's something there that's creating the response, like it, is it just going to go away if we do meaningful activity? Well, meaningful activity depends on the perception and perspective that you have in that situation. So for example, a meaningful activity for a soldier during war is not kicking around a soccer ball. It's, it's staying alive. Like that's their meaningful activity. So what Henry, Dr. Henry Beecher found was that he ran out of morphine and he was injecting soldiers with morphine when they went down on the battlefield so that they could get them away, get them to the tent and then evaluate a little bit more or, or keep them alive. So he's crawling around, he's injecting them with morphine, injecting them with morphine. Their pain response is going down. He runs out of morphine. He doesn't have any, any left in his kit. All he has left is saline. So he keeps going around and now he's injecting soldiers with saline 
And he's finding that they're having the same exact response as the soldiers that were getting morphine. And so to him, he came back to Harvard University and said, that blew my mind. Like it, it would to anybody. How does a saline injection create the same response and a decrease of pain as morphine? And the reality was he was giving them something that they believed in. Their, their faith and their memory is that this drug helps get rid of my pain. Now in war, this drug helps keep me alive when I have this complex injury. So now this saline injection that, that's a placebo is giving them meaningful activity because their meaningful activity is staying alive in that situation. But now someone that has that and they're not in, on a battlefield and they get that injection and they have a broken leg and all right, your dream is to kick a soccer ball, go kick a soccer ball with your broken leg. Their brain might interpret the environment differently and now not allow that to happen. So there, there's a lot of context that goes into the conversation of when and where does our brain allow us to have this pain perception? And in that situation, what is the request that's being made by the brain for us to change our activity or our habits or our patterns, or, or, or we could keep the list going. But if, I mean, literally if a, like a femur is broken, yeah. how could I tell myself I could still kick the ball? Yeah. I'm, I'm not being critical. I'm literally just curious. Yeah. I, 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 I'm curious. I want more. I, right. I want, I want, I want more. And I want, I hope you, do you have like a, like a solution like to the, I mean, you gave several things, but like that, the healthcare pandemic ish, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So there, there, there's plenty of examples and, and I really, I encourage people in the book, you know, all these scientific studies are referenced. And, and so yeah. a lot of this stuff, it, it should create a challenge. It should be a little difficult to digest. And, and like, believe me, I've, I've been there and I, and I continue to be there because I'm pushing myself to learn this stuff more and more and more and dive in deeper and deeper. And so everything's referenced. So once you, once you read it, go to the direct source and read it and, and, and see yeah. what conclusions are you drawing from it and, 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 you know, get yourself to that primary source. Cause it's going to help you to filter through research a little bit easier. And, and it's a good habit to have, have long-term, but we're seeing this everywhere. And, and you know what, I'm going to be biased. And I'm like, I believe in exercise. I believe exercise and that movement is medicine. And part of this journey is you have to evaluate your own critiques and you have to create, you have to critique your own biases. So I, I wanted to know, well, does exercise actually create the difference in health markers such as increase HDL, decrease LDL, so changes in cholesterol? Does it decrease blood pressure? Does it decrease heart rate? Does exercise itself do that? Or does the thought of exercising actually create that change? So I researched it and I found this, she, I'm kind of a nerd, my favorite researcher. I have a favorite researcher. It's Aaliyah Crum. She's from Stanford University. She studies mindset and how powerful our mind is in, in creating physiological responses. So they had two groups. One was, well, both of them were uh, hotel attendants. So they're, they're going around, they're cleaning the rooms. One group was told, when you're cleaning a room, you're meeting moderate levels of physical activity that matches the guidelines that are set forth by the government. The other group wasn't told anything. They're told just, just keep doing your job. 
They followed these two groups for eight weeks. Neither group changed their level of activity. So the one group was not doing any more exercise than the other group. They were cleaning the rooms. They took these health markers at baseline, at the midpoint, and then at the eight-week period. And they found that the group that was told that the physical activity they're doing is meeting the guidelines, they had improved HDL, decrease in LDL, improved blood pressure, improved heart rate. So, so granted with that, like that shows, wow, what are we primed into believing? Because we're always moving towards our strongest thought. And where's our strongest thought come from? Where's our education coming from? Where's our perspectives coming from? And, and, and back to that study, they didn't change their activity level. It was the same between the groups, but the group that was told this had the changes. Wow. Now to pick that apart a little bit more to kind of get both sides, both groups are doing activity. Yeah. You know, so, you but know, I'm not saying when that I was told it there, it was up there. They were in better health. They were in better health. They were in better health. So yeah. I, I still believe that movement is crucial that we are made to move and just a walking program has shown incredible benefits for people with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, um, people in chronic low back pain. There's a study showing a person in chronic low back pain walking 10,000 steps a day brought their pain levels way down. So there's something to movement that I still think plays a role that we have to appreciate. Yeah. But I also think we need to appreciate how strong our brain and our mind is and how strong it is based off of our previous memories and our previous thoughts and whatever framework that we're subscribing to. So it is challenging to look back and go, huh, where do my thoughts and beliefs come from? Is it up to date? Is it based on new science? Um, and the important part is to not do these giant pendulum swings. Like I, I believe in medicine. I don't believe in medicine at all because uh, they all have the time and place. We just need to get better at identifying that, that time and place. So a lot of people might be asking like, well, like, well, how, how do, how do I do that? How do I do that? Like I hurt my knee. What, what do I do? And I'd say, well, the, the framework's in the book. So read, read through that and it will give you some of those answers, but also understand that when you're in discomfort and you're in pain or in this state of absence of meaningful activity or threat of losing meaningful activity, sometimes the uncertainty is scarier than the pain experience itself. And oftentimes yeah. we start reaching to get as much certainty as we can. Give me the image. Give me the specialist. Give me this. Give me that. Because I need to know what's creating this discomfort. And if I know that, well, now I can have better conversations with people because I can say, I have back pain because of a herniated disc. Versus saying, I have back pain, but it's probably because I was working way too hard. I was sleeping four hours a night. My work environment's pretty toxic. My friends are giving me trouble. Like it's easier to say, oh, my pain is because of this thing. But we have to start questioning again that that framework and 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 where is it actually coming from? How is uh so how long has your book officially been out now to the public? It's been out since March. We we released it this past March. And how's it going? How's how's been the the feedback, the reviews, the uh, you know in general, positive, negative, the good, the good, the bad, the ugly, how, how's it going? Very, very positive. And it's, it's probably cause I'm an optimistic person. So I look at the, the positive side of things. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that you put something out like this and there's criticism and, and their judgments and, and it's, it's so true. Like people tell you that, 
you know, it's challenging and you're like, oh, okay. And then you go to do it and you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, it is. It is challenging. You know, some people in, in the field that I thought would really enjoy the work because I thought they were movers and I thought that they were going to help to lead this change back to transformative healthcare versus transactional healthcare. Mm. You know, I, I literally got feedback from one that said, Hey, I read the book. I really enjoyed it, but I don't want my name in it or on it. Real, real quick. What does that mean? A transactional healthcare versus transformative? Yeah. So the, the great question. So again, health is about transactional, how do, like meaning in terms of like money transactions, money. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And reimbursement, big pharma. And, and there, I won't go into it, but there's a bunch of placebo research with medications yep. in, in both opioids, morphine and dopamine, levodopa, carbidopa. There, there's a lot of research in that area. And, and, and a lot of foreign countries are starting to shift, but the U S you know, two things create a lot of profit and, and it tends to be war and illness. And, and we look at the, the paper trail oh, and, and we see, and it's just, it's, it's kind of sickening the more that you learn of what's, what's happening. I mean, if you think about it and I am total, I don't know, you know, I'm general, I don't mean to generalize or whatever, but like if, if people's jobs depend on things keep coming in, you know what I mean? Whether it's like, I don't know, like a, uh, a surgeon, like this is their life, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden it's like, uh, well, we don't need surgeries for this anymore. Like, right. so I, you know, I, look, I know nothing about the, but I, you know, or, you know, pharmaceuticals, like this is how we're getting paid. You know what I mean? Right. The whole thing about, you know, cancer will uh, never be cured because it, um, it's a, a great money maker treating it, not curing it, something like that. So yeah. I don't know, but we, but you did say in the beginning of the book, there was a disclaimer that, you know, the information in this book is not supposed to substitute, right. Your own personal healthcare. And you, you told people to check with their own doctors or what I, I don't want to you know speak for you or whatever, yeah. but interesting that that person that said that, did they say why? Cause they said that they liked your book. Yeah, they, they said they liked it. They really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, we didn't get too much in, into the discussion because I yeah. just kind of took it as as is. And it was like, thank you. Like, I'm, I'm moving on to the next person. And yep. I, I think part of it was that the the work dips into his pocket a, a little bit. Got it. And he also said that, you know, I um, I, I, I want to stick to the science. Mm -hmm. and, and that one I was really challenged by because I'm like, there's 150 scientific articles referenced in, in, in the book. Like what more science do you want? So I look back at, it, I'm like, maybe he was challenged by a little bit of the faith perspective coming into it. I, I don't know. That's me just kind of guessing, but you know, what, what do you do in that situation? You, you pray for them and, and you move on and you, you forgive them. And for whatever reason, like that's didn't want to be part of that. That's fine because there's so many people that want to be a part of it. You know, we just, we had our first live event in Syracuse, uh, last week, we had an incredible turnout and people kept coming up to the table to get their books signed. And every single person said, we needed this. We just, we needed hope. And, and to me, I was like, you know what, that makes all of this worth it. Like, like all of it worth yeah. it. Yeah. So you have live events. We have live events. Yeah. Speaking on the framework of hope and sharing different stories that lead into like what hope is and, you know, they're, they're, they're fun. This, this past one, we, we called it uh, an Italian hope story because I shared about the honeymoon, but then use stuff from the honeymoon to explain hope and self-agency frameworks and goals. And yeah. you know, it was a great time. We dive into science a little bit, but in, again, in a way that's digestible and, 
and I was like, I always get this interesting question question afterwards of, well, okay, you don't believe in medicine or surgery or traditional healthcare. And like, no, 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 no. Like I believe in it at the right time, in the right place with the right people. And, and, yeah, and I will say for people listening that, you know, if you're struggling with your current provider, get a second opinion, get a third opinion, get a fourth opinion, because there are incredible providers out there that are working their butts off to go against the system and take a pay cut to better serve their patients. Mm -hmm. I, I know a handful of them, they exist. Just, you just have to find them. Yeah. Yeah. I have a nurse, nurse press practitioner that, um, I think is great. And I am sensing, I don't want to speak for her, but I'm not going to say her name or where I go or anything like nobody knows at all. Um, although I am going to ask her to listen to this, uh, cause I totally want to get her because she's, it seems also more on the, I don't want to say the healthy side, but like I'm doing also like these natural things and, you know, stuff like that. Um, so, uh, so, so, all right. Did you have the opposite, uh, side though, from healthcare workers that have read it? That's like, Hey, that's, this is great. Like, I believe in this, like can keep going stuff like that. Oh, hundred percent. One, one of my friends, Dr. Tim Gabbett, if you hear load management in the NBA or in the NFL, like this guy is the pioneer of load management of how to study it and how we should interpret it. He's from Australia and he's just, he's, he's a, he's a hoot to hang out with, but he's been named one of the top 25 most influential sports scientists of all time. And he wrote me like a two paragraph review on the book and how much it's needed and how much it's helping with his work with internal load. Cause there's external load, the actual work of doing a task and the internal load, how do you adapt to it? And that's really what the book focuses on the internal load. So he's gotten, he's given me awesome feedback. Marcus Philly, he's the um, creator and owner of functional bodybuilding. He was a five times CrossFit games athlete, just a complete stud, like huge fitness influencer. He wrote an inc incredible review. He's been putting out on his social media and, and getting it out that's, there. So that's, that's it's been awesome. humbling and incredible. And, and it's just, it's been, it's been awesome. Um, so where, where can people, I still have a, a question to ask you about why you got baptized, but yeah. Um, where can people get the book? Where can people find the book? Where can people find out more about you? How can they, you know, are you on social media, websites, stuff like that? And, yep, so, and, and I will put links in the show notes and the description of this. Perfect. Yep. So the book, Hope Not Know, but can be found on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. There's the physical copy, electronic copy, audible version available. It's also available in, in really any other online medium, Target, Walmart, some smaller bookstores. I know some people, they don't want to go to the big buyers like Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. They want to support some smaller places. So it's available in, in all those, all those different places, uh, social media, uh, everything's hope, not nope. So Instagram, hope, not nope. Our YouTube channel, hope, not nope. Uh, Brandy and I have the hope, not nope podcast. Everything's hope, not nope website, hope, not nope.org. Feel free to Send us a message. Podcast? You have a podcast called Hope Not Nope. We have a podcast called Hope Not Nope. Yeah. Did Wait, did you say something in your book that you were you a part of like a number one podcast or something like that? Yeah. So I used to host a podcast that was based out of Los Angeles. And it, you know, I hosted that for three years. Okay. And then as the book was released and things were getting busier within my own business, I had to figure out like, okay, I can't keep doing all these things. Where do I pull back from? Sure, sure, sure. So I pulled back from that podcast and then Brandy and I started our own podcast to support the business and the book and get this message out there. Awesome. More and more. But looking at that now, we'll subscribe now. Hope now the podcast. <laughs> um, all right. So 
you grew up, uh, I guess, because uh, I it sounds like you had great parents listening to the book and the different stories and, you know, uh, the the. <laughs> <laughs> your mom bringing you home the best slice of pizza in the world and then all of a sudden they had to drag you to the hospital i can relate to things like that trust me so it sounds like but i guess just not technically a religious household or you know what led to you getting baptized when i don't even know how old you are but just 18 months ago so uh, i know you've given me a lot of your time so far but i promise i would ask about it and i think it's so uh in terms of your how did you end up now getting baptized yeah, it's it's always it's such an interesting story. So my my mom is Catholic. When she was younger, she went to Catholic school. Uh, when she was at Catholic school, she had a lot of trouble at home and different struggles and sufferings that she went through. And so she started kind of in her brain relating the Catholic Church to what was happening at home as a young child. So then, mm. when her and my dad got together. It's funny because my dad was actually working as a janitor in a Catholic church at at that time. So when they had, I have one older brother, when uh, our parents had us, they decided that they, they didn't want to force religion upon us. They wanted us to make our own choice. And so I was younger, we'd go to a couple Christmas masses here and there, a couple Easter masses here and there, and, and there were Catholic masses. And I just remember sitting there as a kid and I have no idea what's going on. I'm like, there's candles, there's smells. These guys are wearing robes. Like what? I I don't know what's happening, but mom and dad said we have to come here. Yeah. Bells. (laughs) Sorry about that. I've I've taken 20 drinks since. uh... (laughs) Yeah. So I I was always kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Like I believe that there's a creator. I believe there's a power that's greater than us, but I don't really know like what, what that is. And it wasn't a staple in our household. So I didn't really search it much growing up. As I got older, when I was in grad school, one of my friends invited me to come to church and it was a Protestant church. It was what I needed at the time to get introduced to it because I kind of grew up with this perspective that, uh, I don't know how to say it other than this, that, that Christians were kind of weird. You know, they, they weren't on the, the sports teams that I was on. They were sitting together and singing together. They had this youth group thing going on. And I was just kind of associated with like, that's oh, kind of weird. Like none of them were on my basketball team or football team. So I don't know. It must not be for me Com- completely wrong. But so I, I'm in grad school and one of my friends that introduced me to CrossFit and is an incredible athlete. You should come to church with me on Sunday. I'm like, I don't know if I should. And he goes, dude, it's not what you think it is. Like, it's so good. It's laid back. They have coffee, they have donuts, they have strawberries. I'm like, all right, like worst case scenario, I'll get coffee, donuts, and some strawberries, like whatever, I'll, I'll go to it. And it was, it was awesome. It's what I needed at the time because the pastor, phenomenal messages, great sermons, the worship music was great. So it got me interested. It got me interested in like, what, what is this? Why do I feel different when, when I'm here? And so I got curious and then I was like, you know, I'm a, I'm an all in kind of guy. Like I, I was dabbling and I was like, I want to learn more about this. Like I, I need to learn more about this because I hear this verse and this pastor gives this sermon 
and interprets it this way, but then this one interprets it that way. So in reality, are we just interpreting passages differently? And that's what's created all these different things. At the same time is when I started to meet Brandy. And Brandy is a devoted Catholic, like phenomenal, phenomenal Catholic woman. I I can't believe that I am her husband. Like it blows my mind every morning. Yes, we're only a month into marriage, but it's going strong. And I hope I never lose that that disbelief that I get to be her husband. And she never forced it upon me. And she didn't know at the time that I had been heavily researching, like, what is the truth in all this? And, and where does it all come from? And Brandy just very lightly invited me to come to a Catholic mass. And I was like, wow, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I went away from the bells and whistles of like worship sermons to find the truth. And I find the truth with literally there's bells and whistles during, during the mass. Yeah. And then I had that question of, am I really believing that this is the truth? Or is it because there's this really pretty girl next to me that invited me to go to this thing? Yeah. So now I'm telling myself that this is the truth so that I have an opportunity to be with this beautiful girl. And so I had to discern that. And what ended up, what ended up happening is Brandy was, she, she had COVID and wasn't able to go to mass one, one weekend. And I said, wow, I should go on my own and see how, how do I feel and what do I get from this? And does it feel the same? And I thought that would help me to discern, is it really what I should be doing? Or is it that, again, this beautiful girl's next to me. So I went and the deacon gave a phenomenal homily on the call to being married and what that entails. And it was just a beautiful mask, phenomenal readings, great homily. And I left there so excited. And at the end of the mass, they were starting RCIA for, for adults. And I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go to that, but I'm not going to tell Brandy about it because then I'm going to show up to RCIA every week because Brandy's going to reward me and go, wow, I'm so happy that you're doing that. So I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to tell her because I need to figure this out for my own, because if I'm going to get baptized and be Catholic and be practicing this faith, I need to do it for me. So Father Mano invited us to RCIA. I was like, awesome, I'm coming. So I come and uh, I'll never forget it. I sit in the back and they're talking on discerning guardian angels versus like demons and, and just this like very high level things in the faith that I'm like, this is pretty heavy for an day RCIA one, day program. One. Day one, I'm like, what the heck is happening? So then he ends and I go up to him like, Father, like, yeah, I'm like, is this RCIA? <laughs> and he's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's over in the other building, like down in the other floor. Like I was in the wrong class. <laughs> so, Shut up, dude. Yeah, so, Shut up. What so, did you go? Oh, my gosh. So I, I go over to the other building that they're having RCIA in, and they tell me it's in the main room. So I, I, the door's locked, and, and Father Mano goes, just knock on the window and then they'll, and they'll let you in. I'm like, all right. So I get there, I knock on the window and in the meeting that they told me it's, it's a bunch of sisters is a bunch of nuns that are having their meeting in there. So I'm knocking on it and, and the nuns are like, come to the window, like what's going on. And they come and let me in and I go and sit down and I'm like, hi, yeah, I'm, I'm here for RCIA. And, and they're like, no, it's, it's over in this other room. Oh my 
gosh. So I go to this other room. I can't find it. I go to the other side of, uh, of the building. I can't find it. And, and I had that thought of, you know what? It's just, it's not meant to be. I tried and this is just, it's, this isn't it. And I hear these voices behind this one other door I hadn't tried yet. And I go, you know what? Let's just try this last one. So I knock on it. I open it up. There's literally one chair left. And the instructor, he's like, he's like, Hey, can I help you? I'm like, yeah, I'm looking for RCIA. I, I don't think, I don't know. I don't think it's happening anymore. And he goes, I think that's your chair right there. And, uh, it was, it was powerful. I'll try not to get too emotional about it, but the, um, first RCIA was, was incredible because I'm a person that has a lot of questions Me too. and I'm not afraid to ask the hard questions. And he had phenomenal answers for me because there's a lot surrounding the Catholic faith to attacks from the enemy to keep people from coming in. And so I, I had a lot of questions of abuse that's happened within the church. And if this is the truth, how could God allow that to happen? Mm-hmm. And, and all these other stories. And he had incredible answers. And my home parish is at Holy Family. They have a beautiful grotto of Mother Mary. And I was walking out and it was just one of these like moments where the, the, the wind blew and I just got the message, come down to the grotto. And I said, okay, trying this whole obedience thing, not trying to do it my own way anymore. So I went down and I just got this message from Mother Mary that just said, you're in the right place. And I remember looking at the grotto and the statue and being a little freaked out of like, what, what just, what just happened? But September 8th, Brandon and I got married at that grotto. Wow. On the Holy Mother's birthday. Wow. So up. it's, it's just incredible how things work when, when you're obedient, but also the main part of that story. Wow. Is the perseverance to keep going when you don't think that you're meant to anymore, or there's obstacles put in your way, or there's enemy attacks that you can't find the room. You're in the wrong place. And then you finally find it. And then retrospectively, you look back and go, wow, it, it all, it, it all makes sense now. That day one that you felt to go to the grotto. That was, that was day one. Day one. You're in the right place. Yeah. And that's where you got married. Yeah. Holy family in Syracuse. In Syracuse. Yeah. <sighs> that was powerful, man. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Congratulations. Thank you. That's yeah. Wow. All right. I think that's a great way, a great way to end it. Uh, again, I will put, um, links to, uh, Dylan's, um, website and some of his social media, but just remember it's hope, not nope. Please get a copy of his book. Um, please, please, please get a copy of his book and pray for him, pray for him and his wife. And, uh, first and foremost for their marriage, but also for their, their, you call it a ministry or just your, uh, your, I don't want to just say your careers, your vocations, whatever it is. Um, and more than anything else, we both hope, we hope that this episode gives you a lot of hope, but please get a copy of, uh, Dr. Caswell's book. Um, I think it truly would be a blessing to you and your loved ones and your family members. So, um, 
Yeah, I was gonna. Well, I was gonna end by saying something I, funny, but it doesn't make any sense because that was like really, really powerful. But in the very, very, and I'm gonna do it anyway because I'm. I I don't. I don't have a filter. Uh, <laughs> in the very beginning, uh, you said that you called your dad about the ladder, and he said, "Dude, I'll be right there." And I just was like, "This is dad usually call him, dude." Because um, <laughs> I thought that was really cool, but of course I couldn't just hold that and say, "I'll ask you offline." Um, so anyway, but this is why this is a mess. So. Great story. Amazing. Fantastic. God bless. Please tell Brandy I said hi. Tell her thank you so much for uh, being a, uh, really arranging this. Yeah. Uh, and I hope to talk to you guys and to see you sooner than later. Uh, if it, uh, Justin keeps saying I got to come up to Syracuse. So is that where you live? Up in Syracuse? Yeah, yep, we're up in Syracuse. All right. So I'll be there. I'll be there sooner or later, man. Uh, well, we can't wait to see you. And it's it's an honor to come on and, and connect and uh, be on this podcast. You know, it's it's intimidating following up Christopher West uh, on your, your anniversary, but it's it's awesome. Have you I'm heard here. his stuff? Or are you familiar with him? Yeah, yeah. He's he's uh, he's helped educate me a lot through the process of one getting ready for marriage and yeah, his yeah, yeah. Ask Christopher West show and and the show you guys. He's just phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah, he's 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 the real deal. I'm leaving on Sunday to go on a uh, pilgrimage to France with him. Wow. Uh, yeah. The, we're doing a, the, well, the, the, it's not me. I'm going, I'm literally going as a pilgrim. I'm not even the chaplain. There is a priest who's a chaplain, but when I found out about this a year ago and I found out that him and his wife were going and then Jason and Jeanette Clark, Jason Clark is his uh, right-hand man. He's the executive director of the theology of the body. And so I'm very good friends with the Clarks, with the West, my friend, Bill Howard's going. So I said, you know what? I'm going like for myself. So I'm leaving this Sunday and it's uh three days in Lords, the grotto yeah. three days in Lords. And then it's a, uh, it's a, it's a river cruise down the Seine river or the, something like that. And we're going to like Lisieux. We're going to, uh, I don't know the name of the town where Joan of Arc was, uh, her trial was and her execution. We're going to Normandy and many other places, of course, Paris. I've never been before. I've been to Lourdes, but I've never been to all those other places in France. So, um, so yeah, there might be. I just timing. You said right after him, there is going to be a the grilling his holy mess episode that comes out uh, first. So it'll be Christopher West grilling his holy mess, and then this one. Um, so uh, just in terms of uh, the order of things. So I will actually this will be released while I'm in France. So I will be praying for this at the grotto for you wow. for this. Yes. <laughs> I will. Look at that, bro. That's amazing. Look at that. That's amazing. So awesome, man. Hey, I really, and I, and I'm not kidding. I really, I'm going to get a, a physical copy of the book too. Um, so I, I really legitimately, uh, liked it and I, I really got something out of it for myself. Awesome. So, all right, Dylan Caswell, Dr. Dylan Caswell, God bless you. Thanks for being a guest on a holy mess. And, uh, I'm going to, uh, end here officially and then we'll uh, say goodbye. Thank you for joining me for another episode of A Holy Mess Podcast. Please see the show notes in the description for this episode for more details and information about the topic and or the guest. You will find links and resources there to supplement this episode and help you along your messy but holy journey. Please also like, comment, subscribe, download, rate, review, and share all episodes. I want to thank Mike Mangione for providing me with the podcast theme song, Can You Love Me Falling, from his album Red-Winged Blackbird Man. Finally, please note that while me, I, whatever the grammar is, Father Paul Hulis, while I am a priest for the Archdiocese of Newark, a holy mess with his holy mess podcast is not affiliated with the Archdiocese of Newark in any way, including 
fundraising efforts. This podcast is purely the personal hobby, product, and evangelization effort of Father Paul Hulis. Please join us again next time for another holy mess of an episode. Peace! Yeah!